You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. We got a couple of questions um, submitted on our app that I want to address from the pulpit. Um, One was, why don't we sing happy birthday on Christmas? Um, The answer is it's because it's a terrible song, um, and that's why. And so we stick with Oh Holy Night instead of Happy Birthday to Jesus. But if you want to sing Happy Birthday to Jesus, that's totally fine. Um, But somebody wanted me to answer that, so that's my short answer. Another question uh, we had was, what was the time frame of Judas' death? We've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and one thing that's a little bit unclear is when Judas um, hanged himself. And um, and the the, the reason this is a difficult question sometimes is because the Gospel writers don't necessarily write Everything that in their narrative in chronological order, we tend as Westerners to just read things chronologically, but that's not exactly how the Bible's written. Um, but it does seem that Jude, the account of Judas in the Gospels um, does follow a chronology. Um, and what, where that puts Judas' death is after Jesus' arrest, but before his crucifixion. Um, so I can't be dogmatic on that, but I do think that is when uh, Judas committed suicide. And I think the reason is, is because I think Judas, um, from, from some context, I think Judas probably expected a revolution of sorts to occur. Um, I think Judas was a zealous uh, Jewish man that wanted to see uh, the, the nation of Israel out from under the rule of Roman authority in the first century. And when it became clear that Jesus' disciples ran instead of fighting, um, and that Jesus was seemingly allowing himself to be executed, I think Judas realized um, that I think I think Judas realized that he um, his plan didn't work, and he threw the the silver back into the temple, and he hanged himself in the potter's field. Okay, so that's that. And and one of the things I love about our church is is we've tried to really hard to create a culture where it is not only okay, but it's encouraged to ask questions. Um, Asking questions about our faith and about the Bible lead us to this hunger, um, this drive that fuels us to want to learn about God, about our Creator, and it drives us into a close relationship with Him when our our minds are naturally curious about what He's done in our hearts. Um, and, And one great way that you can be on mission this year and be evangelistic this year is to is to look for those types of questions that people in your life may have. Um, it, it maybe they're not asking you questions about your faith, but maybe you could ask them if they have questions about your faith. Um, I had a, a friend that I met with a while back, and he had a lot of doubts and a lot of questions about the Bible, and um, he was kind of raised in a, in a sub-Christian kind of culture, you know, Appalachian, that's very common for us. And... Um, I think he, he even believes in God, but he wanted to you know, ask some questions. And so we, we got together to talk about his questions. And one of them was, Will, do you actually believe that a man uh, built a boat using archaic technology and there was a flood where water covered the whole earth and he got all the animals on the boat so that he could preserve all the species? Do you actually believe that happened? I was like, yeah. And he's like, man, that just seems crazy to me. That seems like a fairy tale. It seems unrealistic. I can't believe, you know, you're an educated man. I can't believe you would believe something like that. And he continues on. He's like, do you actually believe that a man was swallowed by a fish and he lived in the belly of the fish and spit him out and he survived that? Like, do you actually believe that happened? I'm like, yeah. He's like, come on, man. You can't believe that. And so the question I posed back to him was, do you believe that a man rose from the dead? Named Jesus. He said, I don't know. 
And I'm like, well, if you can't believe in the ark and if you can't believe in Jonah's story and you can't believe in those things, then what makes you pause and hesitate and even maybe even think there's a possibility of truth in the resurrection? What brings that to your mind? And he said, well, the amount of people that, that seem to know that it's true. And I was like, that's, that's interesting because if the resurrection is true, then the rest of the Bible is easy stuff, amen? Like if, the, if, if Jesus rose from the dead after his crucifixion, then, then I'm not worried at all about how a man can survive inside a fish for a few days. And, and so the resurrection, I think, is the ultimate supernatural event of the Bible. And if we look at Mark chapter 16, Mark details the climax of his narrative, but I think also our faith in the resurrection. Um, Jeremy and I love to argue about things, as you guys know, right? Um, and one of the things that he and I have argued about is which show is greater. It's even spilled over into my small group last week. is Seinfeld or Friends. And Jeremy erroneously thinks that Seinfeld's greater than Friends. Um, I don't know. I'm just not convinced. And one of the one of the arguments is he hates laugh tracks. Like he's like, yeah, laugh tracks are the worst. And he's like, I don't need I don't need somebody to press play on a on a recording of people laughing to tell me when I'm supposed to laugh. And I'm like, well, that that's that's neither here nor there. And he's like, no, it, it annoys me. And and I did some research on this extensively on a website called TikTok. And um, <laughs> and. <laughs> I'm, I'm on my for you page scrolling, you know, watching funny videos, and there's a screenwriter that comes on, and he he actually talks about how he hates laugh tracks. He he despises them. He says my jokes that I write should be funny enough to make people laugh, that that I don't have to prompt them in any way. But he but he says I've been proven wrong, and I've been proven that that laugh tracks actually work. And and what what he participated in was he wrote for a, a, a network that. Uh, was producing a TV show, and they test, they test drove the pilot episode with um, multiple crowds of people and put them in a room, and they had a dial in front of them. When it was really funny, they would turn the dial to the right. It was hilarious. They'd turn it further to the right. If, it, if a joke bombed or wasn't funny, they'd turn it to the left. And they did this multiple times with multiple groups, and they did it with a laugh track and without a laugh track. And hands down, landslide victory, the, the show, when it had the laugh track, received much better ratings, and people laughed way harder at that. Um, and so he, he said that the proof was in the pudding. And what that means is that the fruit of the, of the research proved something, even though he didn't want it to be true, it proved it to be true. And, and in, Western, in Western culture, this is how we tend to live our lives, right? We're skeptical of things until they are proven to us, and then we'll accept it, even if it's a hard pill to swallow. And, and this is the case with the resurrection. Um, we can be skeptical, we can look at it, but praise be to God that he has given us proofs of the resurrection. And I know that you're here probably because you believe in the resurrection. But if you're here and you're, you, you have doubts about the resurrection, or maybe you're here and you're a skeptic about the resurrection, or maybe you're watching online as a skeptic, I want to show you some of these proofs. And if you already believe in the resurrection, my prayer is that these proofs will bring to, uh, to your soul an assurance that will, that will just uh, bring sanctification to you, uh, motivate you to share this truth with other people, okay? The first, I think one of the greatest proofs of the, of the resurrection, the first one that I want to touch on, is the, the appearances of Jesus to the, to the masses after he raises from the dead. Sometimes we forget Jesus walked the earth for, um, for 40 days after he rose from the dead. And in that time, he appeared to many, many people 
Um, at one point, he appeared to a crowd of over 500 people at one time. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What I love about this is Paul is writing and he's saying in his letter, if you don't believe my account of the resurrection, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, is like an apologetic of the resurrection. He's saying if you don't believe that, there are people who hung out with Jesus, who shared meals with Jesus, who went fishing with Jesus after his crucifixion. Go talk to them. They're still alive. Paul's own life was a great proof of the resurrection. Here you have one of the greatest persecutors of Christianity on earth in the first century becoming a Christian. Um, even, even throughout history, those who have sought and, and tried with, with great effort to disprove Christianity have been converted to Christianity. Luke also brings us proof of the resurrection, writing um, in the first century about the early ministry of the church. In Acts 2.32, he tells us that the resurrection was the central doctrine of, of the church. It's what they based their entire ministry on. This, it says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all our witnesses. Peter's preaching here, and he's making the resurrection the cornerstone of the message that they're going to proclaim for the rest of their lives. Luke also records persecution and martyrdom of saints like uh, Stephen and James. Um, James is, uh, uh, the other James, who's Jesus' brother, is a great proof of the resurrection. He was a skeptic. Uh, John 7, 5 says, not even his brothers believed in him. It tells us that Jesus' brothers thought he was crazy. They wanted nothing to do with him. They didn't believe he was God in the flesh. Um, but then after the crucifixion and the resurrection, James 1.1, we have this letter from James, and he writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls his brother the Lord, the Master, the risen one, Jesus Christ. Um, you have all these conversions of people who wanted nothing to do with it prior, which is great evidence of the resurrection. Now, if you are skeptic or skeptical, or if you have people in your life that are skeptics, um, I, I, would, I would propose that you look around the world and you see billions of people throughout history who have built their lives on the fact of the resurrection, first of all. You have to reckon with that. You have to do something with that. And there's really only three logical choices of what you can do with the resurrection story. You can claim that it's made up, you can claim that it's a myth, or you can accept that it's a miracle. And those are really your only three options. Made up, it's a myth, or it's a miracle. If you say it's made up, people who say it's made up basically say that the apostles wanted so firmly to believe that their leader uh, was still alive, or the, and or that they wanted to create a financial profit for themselves, that they basically stole Jesus' body, made up a story of his resurrection, and held it tightly throughout their lives and ministries. The problem with this theory is that people don't die for stuff that they've made up. 11 of the 12 apostles go to their graves being tortured and murdered, yet refusing to recant the story of the resurrection. This is a great, uh, a great um, evidence of the truth of the resurrection, and not just the apostles, but even throughout the first several centuries that people are tortured for believing in it, yet refuse to deny it. Those that say that it's a myth, they basically take the position that, well, maybe, um, maybe some people in history really believe it to be true, but it had to be by evolution of belief. So, for example, 
Um, in the first century, they would say that it was true in the hearts of believers, that they would say, well, Jesus is alive in our souls. And then they would tell that to their children, who would then in turn tell it to their children. And eventually people began to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead when in fact he didn't. Again, the problem with that is the persecution and the martyrdom in the early church, uh, that there wasn't enough time for this theory to, to really evolve into something, even if it started as a myth. Um, there wasn't enough time for that to be established. And the, the great fact that the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities wanted nothing more than to squash Christianity as soon as it began. And all they had to do to end it was produce a body, produce the body of Jesus, yet they could not because he had been raised. I think the only thing you're left with looking at the proof of the Bible and looking at logic and reason is that there is a miracle that occurred 2,000 years ago where a man rose from the dead. And if that's the case, we should build our entire lives around that fact. And Mark here, he doesn't, as Mark ends his gospel, we spent a year and a half preaching through Mark. So we've learned a little bit about Mark. We've learned about his storytelling technique. And, and as he finishes up the story in chapter 16, he doesn't lay it out like an attorney building a case. Rather, he just lays it out like a storyteller, like he's done through the rest of the gospel. He concisely includes, though, three proofs within his final story and stories of a Savior. And those three proofs that he includes are these, in addition to the ones uh, that are given in the other parts of the Bible. Number one, he shows us the proof in the people. Number two, he shows us the proof in the testimony that's given from the tomb. And number three, he gives us a proof in how he ends his gospel. Uh, the proof in the people is just the witnesses, the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection and the empty tomb. Um, in Mark 16, 1, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him, being Jesus. Now, Jesus is, is being respected and honored by these women because they were respected and honored by him. What I love about Jesus' ministry is he gave value to women in a society that did not. The, the two Marys are mentioned, uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the, the mother of James and Joseph. Um, they are mentioned as being at Jesus' burial, um, graveside. They also witnessed the resurrection. Salome is mentioned in chapter 15 as witnessing the resurrection. So we see them at Jesus' side to the very end, um, going along with him in ministry. They are, in, in very real ways, disciples of Jesus. And this is significant that, that the resurrection witnesses, the first witnesses of the resurrection, are these women. And the reason it's so significant is because I think it disproves the theory that the disciples made this up. If the disciples were going to make, make up a story of Jesus raising from the dead, they would never have their three star witnesses be women. And the reason is, is because in that society, women's testimonies were not even allowed in secular court. They weren't, they weren't allowed to be legal witnesses, and so the apostles would never put the foundation of their story in these women being the primary witnesses. But nevertheless, because it's true and because God wants to use them greatly, we see these women um, going to the tomb and witnessing the empty tomb. And it wasn't a complicated story. They didn't have to detail actions. They just simply had to be there and see that the tomb was empty. Verse 2 tells us when they get up, it says, very early on the first day of the week. That's Sunday. This is why we worship on Sunday, because this was when Jesus was raised. When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. 
Now, these women were clearly devoted to Christ. They got up before, um, before the sun came up, something that you, this 11 o'clock crowd knows nothing of. Amen. Um, and and they, they go and, and they, they get their stuff in order and they, they're prepared to go and anoint the body of Jesus. Um, they put effort into it. I, I love the meme that I see on Facebook from time to time that says, whoever wrote easy like Sunday morning didn't take their kids to church. All right. Can I get a witness? Um, and and it, it takes work to get up on the Lord's day and go and devote yourself to him. Right. Like how many of the Ten Commandments did you break on the way here? Probably at least half of them. Okay. And and here we see these women not being perfect. They, they basically didn't have much of a plan, but they're devoting themselves that we're going to get up and we're going to go and we're going to honor Jesus. When I go camping, uh, we have in our basement at our house. I mean, I'm not like a doomsday prepper, but when you come over to my house, you would think that I am because we just leave all our camping gear in the basement. So when it's time to go camping, it's like ready to go. It's like a bug out area. We just grab everything and go. And, and I don't know what the preparation looked like. But I imagine that these women had these spices, which were very expensive. Um, it was a sacrifice for them to have them. And they've, they've probably got them all planned out the night before because they're getting up so early to go. And they, they have this plan. They're going to meet. They're going to carry the spices. They're going to go, and they're going to go to the tomb and um, encounter Roman guards, all these things. But they forget one critical detail in their plan. How are they going to move the rock? Verse 3 says, They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? That's kind of an important detail, right? Like we have to be able to get in. If we're going to go through the, the work of uh, anointing his body, how are we going to get into the tomb? But God takes care of this. Verse 4 says, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Now look at the faithful people of the Bible. They're devoted people with faith, but very much full of flaws and holes in their thinking, not thinking that I've got to move the rock somehow, right? And we tend to think that, we tend to make heroes out of the people in the Bible, out of their great faith, but we miss and overlook their flaws. And so what that produces in us is we tend to think that faith and flaws are mutually exclusive, that if we're a people of great faith, then we will be a flawless people. But that's not the case. It's not that one gets rid of the other. Rather, our flaws actually strengthen our faith. The strong Christian understands and realizes that the things that we are weak at and that we fail at, our flaws strengthen our faith because they press us to lean on God's strength more than our own. We lean into God's strength because the gospel is good news apart from ourselves, not found within us. And this is the, the difference between the, the motivational self-help type stuff you'll hear in a lot of churches is like, welcome to New Heights Church. You're, you're a terrible failure. That's the message we want you to get every single Sunday so that you cling to a successful, perfect king. His name is Jesus. You're not going to go to heaven because you've got it all together. You're going to go to heaven because you've clung to a perfect savior. God wants you to walk in devotion like these women, but even with some uncertainty like they had. Who's going to move the rock? Anyone have some uncertainty in their life right now? I would think that we all do in some way. Have questions like, how are we going to move that rock? How am I going to pay that bill? How do I know my kids are going to turn out okay? How do I know this situation is going to work out? in a way that's acceptable. Christian, listen to me. You will never have a certain 
plan in your life if you live by faith. You'll never have a certain plan because the plan you follow by faith is not your own plan. It's like, like husbands, you ever do this? You go somewhere and Siri's telling you the way to go and you know better, right? I see some head nodding. Y'all know what I'm talking about. My wife gets mad at me when I do this. And Siri's saying turn right and I'm like, no, nah, I'm gonna go straight because I know a better way, right? Well, God has called us to follow his plan, to lean not on our own understanding, but allow him to make our paths straight. But yet in our stubbornness and in our flaws, we tend to want to take our own path. But the path of the Christian is not to know the plan. The path of the Christian is not to know the entire roadmap. The path of the Christian is sometimes to get up early and step out in faith, not knowing how the rock's going to get moved, but yet we're going to go and we're going to encounter a miracle for God's glory and our good. The Lord uses these uncertain yet devoted women to bring proof to the resurrection. And he's going to use your uncertain circumstances to bring glory to himself as well. Second proof. We see proof in the testimony that's given from inside the tomb. It's beautiful that the proclamation of the gospel comes from inside this tomb, uh, from an angel. One of the other gospels tells us that there are two angels in the tomb. Um, I can't remember what other gospel says that. I probably shouldn't have even told you I couldn't remember. You wouldn't have known, but, um, but nevertheless, that's my ADD brain. But one of the other ones tells us there are two angels. Mark only mentions one. I don't want you to see like a disunity in the gospel. Uh, remember, Mark is short, he's concise, and he's focusing on the one that kind of does the talking. And it, he describes him in verse 5. It says, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Mark uses the word ekthambeo, which is, it, it, it's, it's translated alarmed, which is a good translation, but it also can mean greatly distressed. Um, it it's the same word that's used to describe Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, ekthameo, that he is greatly distressed. And when they see this angel, when they see Jesus' body's gone, they're terrified and they're greatly distressed. And the, the angel gives a testimony of the gospel. This is very important. The angel is sure to include the central message of Christianity in his proclamation to the women. Verse 6, he says to them, Do not be Alarmed, ekthambeo. Do not be alarmed or greatly distressed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him. Now, I want you to notice what the angel is very careful to include in this. First is the identity of Jesus. He even mentions his hometown of Nazareth to make sure that there's no case of mistaken identity. But he also mentions all three elements of the gospel as it is defined in 1 Corinthians 15, the great apologetic chapter of the resurrection. Paul there says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ, number one, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Number two, that he was buried. And number three, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The angel carefully, meticulously proclaims the full gospel to them from the empty tomb. Jesus of Nazareth, the one crucified, the one that you saw buried in this very tomb. So the witnesses here, these women who were at the burial, they didn't go to the wrong place. They knew where they were going. And then he says, this is no case of mistaken identity. He says, he has risen. He's not here. Just like he said to you. Another account says that he proclaims them, why do you seek the living among the dead? 
Jesus is alive. Amen, church? The angel's testimony was the powerful, first, full, without shadow proclamation of the resurrection gospel. There had been whispers of it throughout the entire history that we see in the Old Testament from the Proto-Evangelion in the Garden of Eden, the first gospel that was given as God says to Eve, your offspring will crush the head of Satan to the Abrahamic covenant where Abraham looks up and God says, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky because I'm gonna adopt all these people into my family, to the prophecies of Moses that there would be a great prophet to end all prophets that would come and fulfill all of this to the Davidic covenant where God tells David, you'll have a king in your lineage who will sit on the throne for all time to day in and day out in the temple, bread and wine in the temple, sacrifices every day in the temple, all whispers of this gospel hope. But here, all of it culminates and finds a full message in an empty tomb. This full message is that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected. And that empty tomb stood as a testimony to the truth of it. He is risen. And this testimony is what I have based my entire life upon, and I pray that you have as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If the tomb is not empty, you are just as damned as you have ever been, and you might as well go home right now before the sermon's over. But if the tomb is empty, which it is, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is alive, and if Jesus is alive, then we of of all people on the earth are the ones that are filled with resurrection hope because death cannot touch us, amen? That, that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has defeated death. That all these witnesses, the most meticulously copied records of all antiquity, all the power of government, testimony, and life change, all testify to the truth that the tomb is empty. And since that's the case, Christian, there's nothing that God cannot do for you. There's nothing that's too hard for him. There's no fish that can't swallow a person. There is no ark that can't be built. There is nothing in your life that is impossible for you because you serve a heavenly father who raises people from the dead. So you live and you walk in resurrection power and that doesn't transform you into some goofy, I'm gonna claim everything that I want and just give my wish list to God, but it it changes you into a person that walks by faith and not just what you can see. That you're changed into a person that understands that there's a reality beyond what we can see. And so the exhortation of the angel remains true to you today. Do not be alarmed. Do not be greatly distressed. When you encounter circumstances of great uncertainty, that's normal. Expect it, but don't freak out because your Savior rose from the dead. The empty tomb is full of hope. And it's enough for me to base my entire life on. And here's what the angel says. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Can you just imagine, like just try to like place yourself into the story for a minute. Just imagine the wonder and the fear and just the, just the feeling of being overwhelmed that these women had to experience. They're standing in a tomb. 
talking to an angel, terrified anyways, not sure what's going to happen. And he says that you need to go and tell the disciples, I'm entrusting a message to you. I'm not going to go tell them myself. I'm entrusting this message to you. You tell the disciples, and Peter gets a special shout out. You tell the disciples and Peter that you will see Jesus in Galilee. They're going to lay eyes on Christ. Mary Magdalene, we know from another gospel, um, actually ends up seeing Jesus face to face before before she leaves the garden. So he says, go tell the ones who didn't even bother to show up for my funeral that I'm going to meet them in Galilee, just like I said I would. And Christ has also told us to go church. We live on mission, and our mission is hard. It's awkward to invite people to church and share the gospel. But as we are going, we are called to tell this good news to people. And we do so with a hope-filled promise that after this life is over, we will see him. We will see the risen Lord. The third proof Mark gives us is the ending. The ending of Mark, I think, shows one of the great proofs of the authenticity of this gospel account. Um, we, we watched a movie this week by Disney called In the Canto. My, my daughter told me I had to work on my pronunciation because I called it Encanto. Um, but we watch Encanto, if you will. And um, it's, a, it's a Disney movie, and I'm like, I'm predicting the gift of, of Mary Bell and, and everything that's happening in the movie. I mean, it's a Disney movie, right, Patrick? I mean, they're so predictable. Um, I, know, I know how it's going to go. Like, I know all that. And, um, and, and, and you would expect... The, the gospel writers to write the story with like kind of a Disney kind of happy ending. But let me read the ending of the gospel of Mark to you. Verse 8 says, They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. That's the ending of the gospel of Mark. Now I know most of our Bibles have verses 9 through 20. They're probably, in, if you've got a, a, a Bible you're looking at, it's probably in brackets with an asterisk or a footnote. Uh, Pastor Jeremy and I are going to make a video this week uh, detailing those verses and explaining those verses. But that footnote will say that, that those verses were not included in the earliest manuscripts. And as archaeologists have found more and more manuscripts and earlier and earlier manuscripts... Um, what we've noticed is the ending of Mark is just frankly not there. And so my take on it, if you want my opinion, is that these verses were not included in the original Bible. And that's why we're ending the sermon series today at verse 8. Uh, but I think that these verses, 9 through 20, are an attempt by man to kind of tie the bow on Mark's ending. And I think scholars and history and study and research shows that that was not Mark's intent. He wasn't trying to end with a, with a rainbow and a happily ever after and, and tie the bow on it. But I think man tried to do that by adding verses 9 through 20, but instead he ends in verse 8. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's it. The end. Roll the credits. Executive producer Dick Wolf. You know, that's it. Some of y'all know that. If you ever watch USA, the only show they, they show is Law & Order. And Law and Order always leaves you with that cliffhanger. And like the show should keep going because they want you to watch next week or whatever, or the next hour if you're watching on USA. And then, um, and then it just shows executive producer Dick Wolf. And that's it. 
So Mark here, executive producer, Mark. It's over. Now, why, why would it end like this? I think it ended like this because that's what happened. I think Mark is just, I mean, Mark, Mark is, I think, a man's man. Wives, you ever get frustrated with your husbands because he's so knuckleheaded and dumb? He just, like, there's no flowery language to him. He's not sweet and thoughtful. He don't buy you flowers enough, and he just tells it like it is. Like, I think, I think Mark's wife probably got frustrated with him. He just kind of tells it like it is. And the reason he ends the gospel this way is because that's how it ended. In his mind, he puts the pen down. That's the end of the story. The women were scared, and they didn't go tell people like they were supposed to. Now, we know from other books of the Bible, they eventually did. This is where Mark ends his narrative. Let me add some insight from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, should they not have returned home rejoicing in the news they had heard? Is there not something unexpected about this response? That in itself is a mark of its authenticity. For if man were to invent the story, he would not end it in this way. And I think what Mark does is so interesting because what he does is he keeps in the theme that he had from the beginning of the, of the book. He keeps his theme throughout the whole book. Jesus calms a storm. What, what does he describe the disciples as being? Joyful, thank you, Jesus, for saving our lives? No, he says that they're terrified of him. They look at him and they think he's a ghost. When, they, when he goes to the, the Decapolis in the area of the Gerasenes and he sets a man free from demonic possession because he has a, a thousand uh, demons living inside him, what happens to the people of that area? Do they say, oh, Jesus, thank you for healing this man? No, they're terrified and they, they beg him to leave. What happens when Jesus is arrested? Do the disciples say, we're going to stand with our master? No, they get terrified and run away. Mark, even in accordance with secular history, probably wrote himself into the story. When Jesus is arrested, he writes of a mysterious young man who's sleeping near the garden and runs away naked when they try to arrest him. He even writes himself, secular history says that was Mark. He even writes about himself being afraid and running away. Mark's theme is when humans see the sheer power of God, it terrifies them. And the point of that is that there is no room in Mark's gospel for any hero except Jesus himself. Everyone else is a coward. Everyone else is a failure. Everyone else blows it, but Jesus is alive and he's victorious. That's Mark's message to you today. And so you've seen proofs of the resurrection. Let me go back through my sermon points. I won't take too long, but let me go back through those three points and I want to apply them to our hearts before we Go on with the service today. The proof in the people. As we look at these witnesses of the empty tomb, these women, I want to ask you, where is the proof in the people today? What of you, New Heights Church? What do people look and peer into our church and see? Do they look at us and see a resurrection-marked people? Or do they look at us and see hypocrites? Do they see lives that have been radically changed by the news of the gospel? Or do they see zombies walking about unchanged like nothing miraculous has ever happened to us in our lives? You live as a testimony to the resurrection. You should act like it. Live in light of it. Let the people who observe your life see that you are changed by the fact that Jesus is alive and the tomb is empty. The second one, the proof in the testimony. 
Where's the testimony? It simply means this, is that you can't just live a happy life and expect everyone around you to become followers of Jesus and be adopted into this family as well. God has called you to tell of this good news. Just like the exhortation to the women, he has called you to go and tell people that he is alive. Now, I get it. I'm like y'all. I'm scared. I'm awkward. I fumble around my words. I don't know how to invite someone to church. I don't know how to ask someone if they understand the gospel. It's awkward for all of us, and this is why the women were terrified and they said nothing to anyone, but God's call on you is not just to live better, but to open your mouth and testify of the gospel. Tell people that Jesus is alive, that God is drawing them into this covenant family. And thirdly, the proof in the ending. Will you live this gospel till the very end? Will you persevere like the Bible says you will? And when you persevere, you are proving and authenticating the story of the resurrection, the testimony that billions of people have went to their graves testifying that Jesus is alive. Every death of a saint makes it all the more powerful evidence that Jesus really is alive and the tomb is really empty. Will you live this gospel out to the end? Through fear and uncertainty and discomfort in your life, will you labor on and will you go to your grave living for God's glory alone? If we do those things, the great glory that follows us is that the people around us get a taste of heaven. They get adopted into this family with us and we're ushered into eternity to celebrate with our risen king forever. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.